invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to Paul's magnificent letter, Romans chapter 3. As we have been uh, studying the last few weeks, the essence of the gospel, as Paul explains it in verses 21 and following, how we are justified, made right with God, not by virtue of anything in us or because of us, but by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone, so all the glory goes to God alone. We're going to begin reading once again at verse 21, but we're going to read now through the end of the chapter, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31. Let's give our attention this morning to God's Word. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. Let's ask the Lord to bless. God, you have always created things by your word, the universe, your people, your church, and we thank you, Lord, that today you are speaking this word for the purpose of our salvation, our growth in faith, our joy in Christ, our victory over sin, our hope, our comfort, our joy, our peace, and so, Father, speak and give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of my message is No Boasting Allowed. Uh, You don't have to walk around too much in your day-to-day life before you see signs prohibiting some behavior or another. If you're out uh, taking a walk along a trail or riding your bike, you'll probably see signs along the way that says, No Trespassing Allowed. Uh, If you are uh, in a public uh, park, you'll probably see a sign that says no alcohol allowed. If you're uh, riding public transportation, you'll see a sign saying no smoking allowed. Um, You get the point. You go to a grocery store, no pets allowed. Well, when it comes to the gospel, Paul hangs up this huge banner over the door uh, uh, of the gospel, and uh, it says no boasting allowed. And that is not just a personal preference for the apostle, it is a foundational necessity for salvation. Uh, those who believe or do, that there's something they can bring with them, some merit they can bring with them through the gospel door, 
um, well, they don't understand the gospel. Merit and grace are like oil and water. They don't mix. Uh, You cannot be saved if you uh, desire to come to God thinking that you can bring something that would require God to show favor to you. And so this is not just a personal preference. It's, it just shows that you understand the nature of the gospel itself. Um, Paul is eager to see people saved. It's what he's given his life to. And uh, he's zealous to see both Jews and Gentiles experience the glory of God's salvation of sinners uh, through the gospel, which is a gospel of free grace and, and, and a gospel of salvation, not by work, but by faith. And, and so if you want to enter into the door of everlasting life, you have to leave pride behind. You have to leave merit behind. Uh, people come through this gospel door from all different uh, parts of the world, all different circumstances in their life, all different, back, all different uh, sorts of backgrounds, but everyone comes through the door the same way, on their knees. Everyone comes with humble hearts and empty hands. It's the only possible way to be saved. Now, the Jewish people had forgotten that. They, they sincerely believed that being a Jew had merit. That there was something about being a Jew, being a descendant of Abraham, and being someone who was striving to keep the law of Moses that meant that you in, there was merit that was inherent in being a Jew. You accrued merit, that, that these things had weight and significance before the judgment throne of God. Uh, they had forgotten that God's salvation of them, well, it's, it was always grace. As Pastor Wayne said earlier in the sermon, God made very clear to say, I didn't choose you because you were the, the most righteous of all the people or the, or the most impressive of all the nations. You were the, the, the least impressive, and you're stiff-necked. Grace was, uh, salvation was always of grace for the Jews, but, but they had forgotten that. They had forgotten that God is no man's debtor. And that, that salvation, entrance into the courts of heaven, it can only be received as a free gift. The Jews had forgotten. Well, it's easy for church people to forget that as well. It's very easy to assume that there's something about us that, that has merit to it, that matters before the judgment throne. I saw a, a, just a Vivid reminder of that this past week, uh, Joanne and I went and saw the movie The Jesus Revolution. It's a, it's a true story of um, the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s where thousands of young people, uh, mostly hippies, um, were converted, miraculously, wonderfully converted. Larry Wilson has his own story of being brought to faith uh, in, those, in, in that time. And the movie begins with Pastor Chuck Smith preaching to his, he's got a little church, Calvary Chapel, it's a dying church, aging congregation, and he's standing uh, preaching and he's bemoaning the sad uh, fact of the hippie movement. All these young people who are leaving home and flocking to, uh, to California, uh, resisting authority, getting, getting high, engaging in sexual promiscuity, the, the country seemed to be falling apart. Sounded a lot like how Christians today might bemoan the gender-confused snowflakes of today's college campuses. And as Chuck Smith is preaching, the people are nodding. They agree. Uh, You see, uh, they see themselves as very different from the hippies. 
I'm old enough to remember the hippies. I was just a boy, but I remember, I remember um, conversations among the adults um, doing exactly this, bemoaning, mocking, deriding. Uh, we'd see, you know, these guys with, with long hair and, and big bell-bottom jeans and, and uh, not wearing shoes, and it's like, give me a break. I mean, they, they were the unwashed. They were, they were what's wrong with the world. And that's exactly how the people in Chuck Smith's church thought of them. Um, you see, they, they, they saw themselves as different. They were good, honest, hardworking, law-abiding folks who went to church. And, and they were confident of God's favor, to, at least to some degree, for those reasons. And then these long-haired hippies began showing up at church, and, and the good folks of Calvary, church, Calvary Chapel were offended by that. They angrily rebuked the pastor for letting them in. Quote, they don't belong here. They don't belong here. And of course, you see, the deadly assumption beneath a statement like that is that we do belong here, right? The good, moral, God-fearing people. We do belong here. That, that, that somehow we've gained a right to be in God's church by virtue of our good Christian life. I'm sitting there watching this and wondering, what would we do? What would we do? What would we do if a group of trans kids showed up with multicolored hair and baggy clothes and started inviting their homosexual and trans friends? Would we think that they're not like us and we're not like them and that this isn't the place for them? Or would we start inviting them into our lives and into our homes because we actually understand and believe that there is no difference all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there is no boasting in the church. There's no merit that we have no more inherent right to be here than the most lost person in the world. And we did not get here by virtue of our merit. We got here by grace and astonishing grace alone. And the reason uh, that we're, we're here is because we believe that it's only by grace that we stand. And the door of grace, we believe, is still open to everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, friends, the gospel is meant to dramatically change the way we think about ourselves and the way that we look at the world around us. It did that in Paul's life. It did that in the early life of the early church. And I'm praying it does the same for us today. The question that uh, Paul begins this, uh, where is the boasting? Where is the boasting? Verse 27. What becomes of our boasting as Jewish people, specifically? Uh, we use the word boasting in almost completely um, a negative sense. It has negative connotations exclusively really for us. But the word, the Greek word that Paul uses here for boasting uh, did not have those same connotations. It, it means uh, the state of being rightfully proud. So it's a word a father would use when he says to a son who has accomplished some a great feat, uh, son, I'm proud of you. Paul, Paul uses this word in 1 Thessalonians 2.20 when he says of the church, you are our pride and our joy. So it, it means a status of rightful pride in that sense. So the question about boasting here isn't about arrogance necessarily. It's, it's about rightful confidence. Do some people have a reason for for rightful confidence before God because of what they've done, because of who they are. And the Jews, of course, thought, yes, they did. 
They were convinced of it. They, they didn't mean to be arrogant about it. They didn't mean to be arrogant when they, when they said that they were not like the other nations, that they were God's distinct chosen people. They weren't being arrogant. They were just quoting Scripture. Amos 3 verse 2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You only have I entered into this loving covenant relationship. You alone, of all the families of the earth. Israel really was God's chosen people. Jerusalem actually was his holy city. And so the Jews were absolutely right in understanding that they were distinct, a people belonging uniquely to God. And you can see how easy it would have been then for them to assume that their unique status before God and and their Jewishness and law-keeping had merit. It has weight before the judgment throne. It is a basis for confidence. But you see, that was the deadly assumption. Because though they are correct about their unique, special privilege as God's people, they are completely wrong in assuming that that unique privilege gave them reason for rightful confidence or boasting before the throne of judgment. You cannot, it's not going to work to bring your, your, your Jewish card right into the throne room and lay it down and be rewarded. There's two problems with their assumption. One is, instead of providing a basis for merit... The law of God, which was given to them, as Paul has just made very clear, condemns them. The law of God was given to the Jews. It wasn't given to the Philistines. It wasn't given to the the Amorites and the Amalekites. It it was given to Israel. But you, you see, the law that they prided themselves in, the very same law was condemning them because they didn't keep it. So yes, Amos 3, 2 says... You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. What they were claiming for their merit was actually a dead weight dragging them down to condemnation. It, it was just um, well, the, the evidence of their culpability. Their privilege, their special privilege, rendered them more guilty. That ought to be a sobering thought for us. How many of us born, have not been born and raised in the church? How many special privileges haven't we enjoyed? Having Scripture read to us and knowing the truth of God and the truth of the gospel from our childhood on. Knowing things that we just sort of take for granted and yet billions of people all over the world have never heard a whisper of it. You see, and then we have the audacity in our sinful self, the audacity to pride ourselves on these things when they ought to be just, well, making us really tremble before the Lord. What excuse do we have for our rebellion? What excuse do we have for our unbelief? What excuse do we have for our, our sin patterns that we, we hold to? What excuse do we have when we've been given so much? And so you see, the first false assumption that the, the reason of the, for this false assumption is that what the Jews were pointing to for their pride was actually evidence of their guilt. But secondly, uh, their unique status in the world uh, was, was all of grace and only of grace, 
Uh, it was never meant to be a source for confidence before God as a source of religious pride. Never meant to be a basis of merit before God. And so Paul, you see, is intentionally popping the balloon of Jewish false assurance when he asks the question, what becomes of our boasting? Because the point he's making is it is excluded, it's banned, it's eliminated. The, the Jewish confidence is um, it's rejected outright. Now, of course, th- this doesn't just apply to Jewish people. You see, because this sense that we have some aspect of merit that we can bring before the court of God, that's just natural native human behavior, fallen human behavior. Sin to to, uh, the natural fallen man doesn't seem so big of a deal that he can't do something to make it right, something at least to um, provide God with a reason why God should be gracious to us. And so people who do the most outrageous things will say, but God knows my heart. And we all, of course, do the most outrageous things. God knows my heart, and, and God knows that, yes, I'm, I'm really struggling over here, but if you look here and here and here, I'm actually doing quite well, better than I used to be. And, and, and people sort of assume that that, that's, that will be sufficient on the day of judgment. Well, we're doing the same thing that the Jews were doing. You see, everyone around the world is in some way appealing to the law to seeking to gain some merit on the day of judgment. The, the devotees of every religion are, are, are doing exactly this. The common person on the street is doing exactly this. Looking for some things in their life that we can point to as a basis for confidence, some, some merit that we could bring before God. And Paul says, he just slams the door on it. It's not going to work. It can't work. And he points out why it can't work as we look, secondly, at the principle, verse 27. What, on what basis is Paul saying that, that no human merit is allowed before the judgment throne? By what kind of law, he says? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, Jewish boasting and every human appeal to merit is excluded by what Paul calls the law of faith. You can also translate that as the principle of faith, the rule of faith. And, and it is, this is the line of demarcation between the true gospel and every other religion in the world. Because you see, the, the question on the table is simply this, how is a person, a sinful person, made right and righteous before God. How does, how does a person gain everlasting life? Every religion of man will tell you, will answer that question according to the principle of the law, which means there are, there are things you must do. You must be good. You must be sorry. You must make efforts. You must adhere to the standards of your religion. There's something that you need to do to to gain merit, every religion of the world. Unfortunately, there are countless professing Christians who live by the same law, the law of works. They're either secretly proud because they think they're doing fairly well, uh, they see themselves as good people, or they live lives of shame 
and despair because they know that secretly they're not good people. And so either way, you see the one goes to church uh, and says his prayers, um, confident in his goodness and, and seeking to enhance his spiritual resume, and the other person goes uh, desperately hoping that they, there's something that they can do to make themselves worthy of God's love. Some of you are undoubtedly are in that rut this morning, and you're wondering why there's no joy in your salvation. Well, it's most likely that this central truth of the gospel has, has not struck home. And so you're, doing, you're, you're trying hard. I just think my heart goes out to you this morning for those of you who are stuck in some sin pattern, and you're trying hard. But the gospel doesn't strike you as good news. The gospel sounds like, it sounds like, you just got to try, try harder. And, and you got to do more. You got to be more serious. Well, there's, there's, no, there's no exit from that road. That is a dead-end road. There's no, there's no power in that road. There's no transformation in that road. The, the, the wonderful truth of the gospel, you see, God has good news for us that God has made a way for great sinners like you and me to be justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And we're going to take all of chapter 4, Paul is going to be expounding that and expanding that idea. But it's apart from the works of the law. God has made a way to wash away all of your sin apart from your efforts. God has made a way to robe you in the righteousness of Jesus Christ apart from anything you've ever done or ever will do. It's not in any way related to what you do. It's not related to the works of the law. It's by faith. And as I said, Paul in Romans chapter 4 is going to just hammer home. Faith is gift and grace. It's not like work, which is wage, which you earn. The gospel is about gift and grace. And God gives this gift of salvation freely to those who believe, those who claim Jesus by faith. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's the principle of faith. Justification comes to those who believe, not to those who work. Now, that is the gospel spark that ignited the Reformation. That's the gospel spark that just blew up, in a sense, the, the medieval church. Because, you see, the Catholic uh, church was teaching that people are… They, the Catholic church believed in faith, and they believed in grace and the necessity of, of Christ, of course, for all of it. But… but but they had blended grace with your own efforts. That, that the work of Christ is as absolutely necessary, but there's things that you must do to make yourself worthy of ultimate justification. So that's seen, um, for instance, in the doctrine of penance. Penance is something that you need to do after you've sinned to make it right. Let me read uh, from the current Roman Catholic Catechism concerning penance. Absolution, they say, takes away sin, but it does not remedy all the disorders sin has caused. Raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for the sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate his sins. This satisfaction is also called penance. So you see, the, 
in the Catholic system, expiating sin, sat, making satisfaction for sin, that's up to you. Now, God will help you, and God has given, he gives His grace through the sacraments of the church, so God has given you all the help that you need. But end of the day, it's up to you to do the work of satisfying for your sin. And if you don't complete that work in this life, well, then you get to finish it up in purgatory. Now, it's, it's plausible. It's just not the gospel. You see, that, that is a religion of merit. End of the day, it's a religion of merit. It teaches you how, with God's help, you can come to a place where you can rightfully boast before God. And there are a lot of good Reformed people who are living exactly the same way. That with God's help, I'm going to become a better person, and that makes me, that makes me more uh, uh, worthy of God's affection. It makes me worthy of God's favor, of God's blessings. And, and the truth of it will come out when tragedy strikes and people will say, how could God do this to me? I'm a good person. Why doesn't God answer my prayers the way I'm asking? Now, again, there's a way of asking that in, in full faith and, and humility before the Lord, and there's a way of asking it that is appealing to the merit you think you've earned with God. You see, that's why the gospel is so beautiful. It just blows up uh, those assumptions, false assumptions, and misconceptions. As God just lays in front of us, there is one way and one way only to come into His presence, and that is by, by grace alone, in faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the only possible way to be declared righteous and to be, and to be made right with God. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. I love how Paul says, is He not the God of Gentiles also? That's a, that would be a bracing uh, thought, question for the Jews. Because in their mind, no. God is the God of the Jews. I mean, in some vague, maybe, way, he's God of the Gentiles, but Paul just wham right at it. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes. Of Gentiles also. Is he not the God of hippies also? Yeah, he's the God of hippies too. He's the God of the unwashed, uncircumcised, and unchurched. And, and, and Paul there, by saying that, doesn't mean that everyone is saved. What he's saying is that there's one God, and there's one way to be, find favor with God, and it is the same. I don't care who you are. I don't care what your background is. And that one way, circumcised or uncircumcised, churched or pagan, does not matter. There's one way, and that is by faith and faith alone. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Pours contempt on all of our pride. Isn't it wonderful to think that on the day uh, when Jesus returns and, and we're standing there gathered with all the saints from every tongue and tribe and nation and every single person there will say that I'm here by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone and God gets the glory alone. Amen. No boasting here except in the Lord. How great is God? How great is God? That's going to be the resounding anthem of heaven. And who would want in any other way? That's what the gospel does. You see, the gospel uh, finally brings you to the end of yourself so that you can enter into the door of salvation, of faith, uh, salvation by faith alone and grace alone in Christ alone for the glory of God alone. There won't be a single saint in heaven talking about their worth. There's one person in heaven that's worthy. His name is Jesus. 
And it's exactly how it ought to be. This is a glorious gospel. But it leaves us with a dilemma. What about the law? What about the law? Paul, it's, you know, it's, it's great. You're talking about grace alone, faith alone, and all that. But we happen to have this thing called the Old Testament. And it is full of laws. And they're all God's laws. And there are uh, blessings uh, uh, that are attached to keeping them. And there are curses attached to breaking them. So, Paul, what are you going to do with the Old Testament? What are you going to do with the law of God? And Paul was dealing with this all the time. So Paul has to answer it. Verse 31, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Because that's the charge. Paul's chucking the whole thing. And, it, and it's a charge that, well, it makes sense. Uh, so the Jews would say, um, Paul, let's just talk about circumcision. God gave Abraham this, this, this uh, sacrament of circumcision, and God requires it. It is, it is a sign of the covenant. And you, Paul, are saying it's irrelevant. And that's exactly what Paul was saying. Galatians 5.16, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so the Jews are... Uh, they're wrestling with this. Paul is nullifying the law. Paul is chucking the whole thing overboard. The ceremonial laws, sacrifices, and, and the temple worship, Paul's chucking it. He says, you don't have to go to the temple to worship. You don't, need to, you don't need to make sacrifices. Even the moral law, Paul says that you can be saved even though you are, you've lived a life of wretched sin. Well, how do we answer that? Well, you see, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not nullifying the law. I'm upholding the law. And let me just quickly show you how he does it. You see, he's pointing to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the law. So if you think about the ceremonial laws, all the sacrifice and sacrifices and laws about cleanliness and, and uh, temple worship, you see, Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He didn't throw it overboard. He fulfilled it. It passes away because it's been fulfilled in Christ, as the writer of Hebrews will say. You can slaughter animals till kingdom come. It doesn't, ma- it, it doesn't pay for sin. It doesn't wash away sin. All of those sacrifices were just pointing to the need for a real sacrifice who could actually atone. And now that Christ has been offered up once and for all, it's over. It's fulfilled. It's not nullified. It's just gloriously fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus upholds the law doesn't nullify it. Jesus is the fulfillment of the moral law. Can abject, awful, wretched sinners be saved freely by the grace of God? Yes, they can. How? Well, because, you see, Jesus kept the moral law in our place. He never once sinned. And he alone was, was the perfect man, the, the law-keeping man who receives the blessings of the law. And those, those are the blessings, of course, that he gives to us. And so the, the moral law is upheld in the gospel as, as Jesus Christ keeps the law in our place and his, his obedience is imputed to sinners like you and me. Man, if you're dealing with the sin this morning, and I hope you are in some aspect in your life, I hope you're dealing with your sin. What wonderful news that the righteousness of Christ, my righteousness is Jesus' life. Right? That's my righteousness. The moral law is upheld in the gospel. God is just as he justifies wicked people like us. 
You see, and the gospel is, the law is upheld by the gospel in that the, the gospel finally frees people to start doing the law. And what I mean is this. Throughout the Old Testament and, of course, the New, the essence of the law is what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence of the law. Well, how are you going to do that when you have a heart that is in bondage to self and in bondage to sin? When you love things that God hates and you naturally hate God and, and struggle with other people. You see, the gospel is the only power on earth that can free sinful people to actually love, to love God and to love others. The concern of the legalists, you see, is always that if you tell people that they can receive all the grace and favor of God apart from anything they do, they're going to live like devils, right? You've just removed all motive for a pursuit of godliness. Well, that, that's just not true. It, the exact opposite is true. You see, if you, if you come to a sinner and say, brother, you just need to work harder, you are either going to create a hypocrite or just a despairing man. That's all you can do with law. Parents, pay attention. When you're raising your children, if you're just going to apply law, uh, you're going to raise a hypocrite or a despairing child. That's all the law can do. So how do you make a lover? How do you create a lover? Well, you create a lover when you tell that very same sinner who's, who's gripped by the truth of his sin, that God so loved him that he gave his only son, that if, that, that if this sinner will believe in him, he will not perish but have everlasting life. That God has made a way for every sin he's ever committed and ever will commit in his entire life is atoned for by the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus said it is finished, it was finished. And that on the basis of that love and that grace that he has freely received from God, he can live a brand new life. You see, that good news will make a lover, not a hypocrite, not a despairing person, but a lover of God, a lover of the gospel, a lover of other people. It's the only power on earth that can do it. And love is the fulfillment of the law. We're going to talk about that more tonight. So friends, let me wrap it up with just asking this. Is that your experience of the gospel? Is this your experience of the gospel? Is that what the gospel is actually doing in your life? Is the gospel creating a lover of God in your heart? That the more you hear about the, the, the gospel, the more you learn about Jesus, the more you realize and come to deal with your own sin, the more you love Jesus. You love him. And you love the Father for sending him. And you love the Holy Spirit who is so patient with you and who doesn't let you go. And you love the word of God that speaks truth, both the truth about your sin and the truth about the glory of God. And you're learning to love people made in the image of your Father. People who are not like you and people even who hurt you, sin against you. You're becoming a changed person. Is that what the gospel is doing in your life? And friend, if it's not doing that, let me just ask you to, to, to plead for the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. What principle are you living by? Are you living by the principle of the law or are you living by the principle of faith? What's your hope based on? I just pray that God would give us the grace 
to repent of any aspect of our life that just has the whiff of we're good church people. So we start looking at ourselves differently. We start looking at the world differently. The, the, the lost people of our community aren't, aren't the unwashed. They're not the people to despise. They're the mission field. And they're just like us without Jesus. One of the things that struck me about the hippie movement was when Chuck Smith realized that, that all these hippies that he was complaining about, well, they were just people who were desperately lost and looking for hope, and, and everything that they tried was failing them. And so he had the joy of preaching Jesus Christ. Well, let's do that. Let's do that. May God give us the grace to believe it. Amen. Well, Father in heaven, I thank you for um, your gospel. I thank you, Lord, for the way that you pour contempt on our pride. And you free us to become different people as we live not by the law of works, but by the law of faith. Lord, I thank you so much for your goodness and kindness to us. I thank you, Lord, for the ways that we've grown already, and, and I thank you, Lord, that the work that you've begun, you promised to carry on to completion. I pray, Lord, that, that as we apply these truths to our life, to our heart, uh, we will experience the power of them. I pray, Lord, for the person here this morning who's just burdened by his sin or her sin and, and sees no hope, and I pray, O oh God, that, that your gospel would give them great hope today. That by the power of God, Lord, you can transform us as we come to Jesus faith with faith alone, trusting in his grace alone. And well, Lord, I, I pray that you would just give that comfort and encouragement and strength and the joy of seeing a life being transformed as, as we despair of ourselves and our efforts and just come to Jesus and rest in his righteousness. And so, Lord, we pray this in his name for his sake. Amen. Let's respond how deep the Father's love for us. We will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. We will boast only in Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing.
blessing of the Lord your God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace till Christ come again. Amen.